From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net, I'm John Shuck. I have a prediction. My prediction is that my guest today will be seen by our descendants as the most important theologian of the latter 20th and early 21st centuries. He will go down in history, assuming there is a history, as the most important prophet not heard in his own time. He's the author of over 25 books on theology and philosophy and another dozen on 9-11. He's the world's premier scholar regarding the search for the truth behind 9-11. His books on 9-11 have been ignored by the media, not because of their scholarship, but because Americans cannot handle the implications. Now he's turned his critical eye toward the CO2 crisis. On the phone with me from Santa Barbara, California, is David Ray Griffin to discuss his latest book, Unprecedented, Can Civilization Survive the CO2 Crisis? Welcome, Professor Griffin, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you very much. You know, I moved uh, to Portland in January 2015. Uh, the first year, the locals told me that uh, the weather isn't normally like this. It was first the hottest, and then it was the driest, and then uh, in December, it was the wettest that uh, the natives here remembered. So I guess we could say that uh, extreme weather conditions in Portland were unprecedented. We've been experiencing unprecedented climate disruptions. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being absolutely critical, how serious is global warming? Well, unfortunately, it's a 10 now as well as the future. So things are not making life impossible now. But if we continue on without radical changes, um, life will soon be uh, very unpleasant and then eventually uh, impossible. How certain are scientists about global warming and climate change? Oh, about 99.9%. And, of course, that's very different from what uh, the media seems to indicate. Yeah. Um, the media are trying to uh, sell us things, not uh, tell us truth. I think, um, in some ways, the most important chapter in my book was on the media, and certainly when I get to the... Uh, final chapter on um, what can be done um, in which we need uh, uh, a very uh, extreme uh, uh, change why uh, uh, the, the media I argue is the, the most important thing of course the president the congress um, but without the media um, there will be uh, little if uh, no hope. In the first part of your book, uh, you write about unprecedented threats, extreme weather, heat waves, droughts, wildfires, storms, sea level rise, freshwater shortage, food shortage, climate refugees, climate wars, a chapter on each of those topics. Of these, can you give a few examples, a few word pictures to, to lay out the problem? Uh, poetry isn't my specialty, but uh, uh, we can at least get images where we can imagine uh, what will be coming. Uh, for one thing, um, t tornadoes are the things that frighten me the most, and um, now there are going to be ever more powerful tornadoes. 
they're going to occur more often, and they're going to start occurring in places where they have never been. So we're not going to have any uh, <laughs> cell cellars to get down into. Um, hurricanes uh, will continue getting worse. Uh, so at some time, uh, people, assuming there will be people at the time, will look back to thinking, uh, Katrina and Sandy, what was the big deal? Uh, they were they seemed pretty mild. Uh, rainstorms will increasingly flood our roads and our crops. Um, droughts in some places will be lasting uh, years or even permanently here in the, the southwest. And uh, billions of people in Asia and South America, uh, places in the world that are depending upon glaciers, almost... Uh, Almost 100% dependent upon glaciers uh, for for drinking water and and uh, agricultural water. Um, the glaciers are melting, uh, you know, with frightening frightening speed, and so um, we will have there will be uh, literally billions of people uh, without clean drinking water without. Uh, capability to uh, to uh, grow crops. Now, can we talk a timeline for this? I mean, when we hear things like the sea level will be rising a foot or whatever by the year 2100, it seems a little abstract and distant. When do you see these kinds of things really impacting us? Like my nephew, when he's my age, the year will be about 2060. What, what will he look like if we uh, carry on as business as usual? Yeah, well, our, our feet may be wet. When I wrote my book, I quoted a couple of guys there wrote a big book about the raising of the tide. They said, get ready for seven feet, meaning uh, by the end of the century. And um, most people thought, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Uh, the real experts are telling us it may go up uh, in uh, 12 inches or maybe a foot at most two feet or, you know, the real extreme guys will say three feet. Well, now um, there's a growing consensus that uh, seven is too uh, modest, that uh, it's more looking like uh, 10 feet. Well, when you take a, you know, uh, just cut that in half then, um, that wouldn't be exact, of course, but just say roughly, um, let's say five feet by the time your uh, nephew is your present age, we're going to have uh, much less uh, land. <laughs> we will have moved inland from the oceans. You know, cities like Boston and uh, New York, uh, obviously uh, Miami, uh, parts of, uh, of uh, San Francisco or more, and, and, and Los Angeles in particular, um, Seattle, Tacoma, um, they will lose um, a lot of their, of their buildings. I mean, they'll be, they'll be underwater. It'd be unlivable, uh, be no business there. So um, you get some image that, uh, what, five feet, four or five feet, uh, can make a drastic, very drastic changes.
And, and of course, the and effects of, course, of that would be, uh, I mean, economic uh, collapse, wouldn't it? I mean, with, with major cities well, and people having to move. It'll, it'll certainly uh, <laughs> it'll certainly not be helpful. Yeah. And then even uh, that's uh, what we in the rich world will suffer. Um, there will be some places that can block themselves off, sort of like uh, the Netherlands. But uh, a lot of places uh, going down the, the East Coast, it would be very hard to uh, block that whole area off. Um, but with a lot of people, it will be much uh, more serious than that. So already in uh, Bangladesh, you have uh, tens of thousands of people uh, needing to move. And um, India then is uh, doing everything they can to, to block them. So we're having some immigration problems in, um, in Europe now because of the, the wars in uh, Syria and Iraq and uh, Libya and other places. Well, the, the immigration problem... Uh, when we uh, get an increase in three or so feet, uh, you know, we'll, we'll uh, make that look like the good old days when there really were not serious immigration problems. And so people will be, you know, blocked out. They'll be uh, uh, not only fenced out, they'll be shot. If they, so, I mean, it'll, it'll get pretty ugly. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is David Ray Griffin, author of Unprecedented, Can Civilization Survive the CO2 Crisis? And and these are, are conditions that aren't a fantasy. This isn't an apocalyptic novel. This is what the science would show us are the effects if we continue to pump CO2 into the atmosphere at, uh, at the rate we're doing now. That's right. I, in my book, I rely primarily on uh, James Hansen, who is generally considered the uh, overall expert uh, on these matters. And it was a recent paper by him that said um, 10 to 11 feet um, by the end of the century would be probable. Now, there are forces that aren't ignorant necessarily about this. I wonder what the president really thinks, but actually deceptive in regards to manufacturing doubt uh, regarding climate change. How, how is the public manipulated? We talked earlier a little bit about the media, but how is the public manipulated and, and, and by whom? Yeah, of course, I have a whole chapter on, uh, on that. Um, the way the fossil fuel companies have, uh, and especially ExxonMobil, have uh, paid um, millions of dollars for people all around the world to be denying uh, climate change. Um, you write an article in the paper talking about the likelihood of increase of uh, several feet, and uh, you get a number of uh, rebuttals. So when you're looking on the Internet, there are more people denying that there's going to be any serious uh, ocean rise than uh, those affirming it. They have been doing this now for 
at least two full decades, between two and three decades. Now, uh, just today, um, there was a new story, uh, a new report coming out that showed that uh, ExxonMobil knew the full truth about this um, much earlier. Uh, at the very end of the 60s and uh, the 1970s, we had some earlier reports that were pretty sensationalist that, uh, you know, got a lot of attention saying that ExxonMobil uh, knew this in the 1980s and, and covered it up. So their scientists um, were very good scientists. They reported the facts and they said, you know, this is going to cause a, a great um, uh, number of uh, terrible uh, effects. Uh, so we're going to have to do something with uh, fossil fuels uh, if we're going to have a, um, a functioning civilization uh, in another century or so. And uh, at some point in, the front office said, no more of that talk. And um, they, they uh, tried to disappear all those reports and uh, started then uh, putting out these uh, climate denial uh, groups all around the world, uh, particularly in the United States. Um, so um, this is, you know, you ask about, uh, you had asked me in a, in a note uh, prior to our discussion uh, about evil and, uh, and my views on philosophy and theology. Well, this is about as evil as uh, you get in order to have immediate profits, profits over the next two or three um, decades, you're willing to risk um, the destruction of, of civilization. And you are a theology and philosophy is, is your career. A uh, Wikipedia article I read about you uh, lists uh, 25 of your books on those topics, another dozen or so on 9-11. Um, in fact, your book, Christian Faith and the Truth Behind 9-11, A Call to Reflection and Action, uh, was the book that changed my outlook on 9-11. When, a, when the Presbyterian Publishing House stopped selling it, I realized that you were an author that needed to be read. Uh, now Unprecedented, which uh, one reviewer, Richard Falk of Princeton, said, if you read only one book on climate change, make it be unprecedented. Uh, so is there a connection between uh, the books you've written on theology as well as 9-11 and uh, this latest, Unprecedented? Yeah, there's, there's quite a connection. Uh, those various writings, uh, the ones in uh, philosophy, philosophy of religion, and theology, they're what you might call implicitly save the world books. Uh, the ones on 9-11 and uh, uh, climate change are are explicitly uh, save the world books. So uh, uh, those are rather obvious, but um, the, the the ways that those other books are implicitly about this is about a worldview. I've argued that the world is uh, meaningful, that it is a religious universe, that religious experience is real that moral obligation, moral norms are real. And I've spent a lot of time pointing out that uh, the reality of a divine being and uh, moral norms is not contradicted by the problem of evil. 
So I wrote uh, two full-length books on that and, uh, you know, lots of articles. And then I've written a book on uh, freedom, on uh, on the mind-body problem, showing how, although most philosophers have argued that freedom does not exist, it's impossible, um, I point out a way to understand uh, uh, that indeed it is, and it's something we all necessarily presuppose, presuppose in practice. Even these philosophers who deny freedom say, well, we can't help living without presupposing freedom. And finally, um, the more freedom that creatures have, uh, the greater uh, the danger. And obviously on our planet, uh, we have the greatest amount of freedom. And uh, likewise, we are the greatest uh, danger to the planet. You're listening to Progressive Spirit. My guest is David Ray Griffin. He's the author of Unprecedented. Can Civilization Survive the CO2 Crisis? When we talk about God or something like that as, as a supernatural being who's protecting the earth and, and all of that kind of stuff, that, that is such a, a popular type of theology that ends up being uh, destructive for our outlook. Yeah, uh in the, in the United States in particular, uh, the two greatest problems with uh, recognizing the reality of, of climate change and its dangers um, is, on the one hand, the fossil fuel uh, agencies and uh, organizations which have denied it. Uh, so even ExxonMobil, who've admitted now <laughs> that they lied, um, they still uh, carry on with their lying. And then the other major problem is the uh, belief in an omnipotent deity. So you have um, many people, including people in the U.S. Senate and the uh, House of Representatives, explicitly de- denying that there's any problem with uh, uh, climate change because um, God's in charge, as is uh, uh, Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma said, you know, God's still up there. So uh, we don't need to worry about this, because God would not let uh, climate change uh, destroy us, unless, of course, uh, God wants to do so. So it's not a problem we need to deal with. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the more extreme views of that uh, are, are rather apocalyptic that, you know, bring on the problem problems so Christ will return. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> like you said, even more extreme. And so um, so you've got different degrees of, uh, of um, climate denial based upon um, theological ideas, and, and I don't hesitate to say, completely false theological ideas. Well, one thing you write about is the moral challenge we face to move away from fossil fuels as we moved away from slavery, uh, an abolitionist movement, so to speak. So what is the slave, or who is the slave owner in this respect, and are we not all culpable if we use fossil fuels? Yes, we are all culpable um, to one degree or another. Dependent because, and, and to some extent, um, we were blameless because uh, until about 40 years ago, we didn't know, and uh, until about uh, 
20 to 30 years ago, the general public didn't even know. But um, now we do know, or at least um, if you don't know, you're deliberately, you know, uh, uh, being ignorant where you, where you should know. On the slavery, yeah. See, at one time, the fossil fuels came in. It made it possible to get rid of slavery uh, because we had these now devices and all sorts of things that allowed uh, people to still live uh, comfortable lives uh, without having slaves. In other words, the, the rich and the, uh, the upper-middle-class people. And so it, it helped the abolition movement, the fact that the fossil fuels were, were there, so that we did have these labor-saving uh, devices. Uh, now, the, the new slavery is uh, the, all of these devices that are dependent upon uh, fossil fuels. So, yes, but just as um, the fossil fuels allowed us to get out of slavery uh, without terrible changes, uh, likewise, we now have a way out, thanks to clean energy, that uh, we can quit using uh, fossil fuels, and we could quit uh, rather quickly. Some people think that uh, if we went uh, full out with, um, you know, World War II-type mobilization, um, we could uh, uh, overcome at least 90% of the fossil fuel usage uh, within 20 years. But obviously there is very little movement in that direction thus far. And certainly you don't get discussions about this on the evening news. You know, they might have taken a few seconds away from talking about Donald Trump uh, <laughs> to talk about uh, the future of the planet. David Ray Griffith is my guest. He's the author of Unprecedented, Can Civilization Survive the CO2 Crisis? Let, you, you have a whole chapter that is um, thorough. Uh, regarding uh, clean energy. You even write about electric airplanes. Um, I wonder if our society has been built, though, on fossil fuels evolved from that, can it really transition to life as we know it or have known it um, on other forms of energy? Isn't Might we need a whole new way of living, uh, perhaps even beyond automobiles and planes? Yeah, we are now addicted both uh, personally and just in terms of the way our society and our, our cities are structured, for example, being, uh, you know, in part of the, uh, not too far from uh, Los Angeles, um, there is hardly any, very little public transportation. And so uh, most people feel like they're, you know, necessitated to use uh, automobiles. But now that we recognize the addiction, we now can see the addiction is uh, killing us. In spite of what the fossil fuel industry says, there are now adequate alternatives. We could, uh, as you say, live uh, a different kind of life. Communities could be restructured such that you could get most places by walking or using bikes bikes or trains, uh, reduced plane uh, travel could be reduced by, say, 95%, still allow us to 
get around the world when it was necessary. We could stay at home a lot more thanks to uh, the Internet and electronics and, and so on. So, yeah, we could have a very different kind of life, and we could have, uh, in fact, uh, a much better kind of life. People out here sometimes spend four hours every day commuting to and from work. In each of your chapters, you have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. Uh, A plan B. A is if we just kind of continue on as we're doing. A plan C is wait 10, 20 years or so till it gets really worse, then then perhaps mobilize. And plan B is a mobilization immediately. So we could write a lot about, you know, how we need to do it. But getting that motivation going seems to be the huge problem. Yeah, and this gets into what theologians call original sin. Uh. That is, human beings have rather deep-seated tendency to be concerned about their only their own welfare and that of their uh, family and their rather immediate uh, community. So uh, the idea that we should make any significant changes and certainly any sacrifices in order to help people in future generations um, that's, you know, not within the worldview of, of most people uh, these days, um, at least in the United States and much of the, the Western world. Native Americans, of course, at least some of them, had this tradition that every decision you make, you should make in terms of uh, the next seven generations. So don't do anything that's going to ruin life for people in the next seven generations. Um, We have people who aren't even worried about, evidently, in terms of their behavior, about their own children and certainly not about their their grandchildren, that more important is to have my own comfort and uh, pleasure uh, right now. David Rigg Griffin has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. His book is Unprecedented, Can Civilization Survive the CO2 Crisis? Professor Griffin, thank you for this book. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For more information about the show and links to podcasts, go to progressivespirit.net. From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be well.